Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Well, good morning. <clears throat> good to be with you guys this morning. We've got a little bit of change of pace. Hopefully you guys will enjoy it this morning. I have found that when I'm teaching, the less I can teach and get out of the way, the more people enjoy it. So we're going to have... A few other folks uh, sharing a couple things this morning. I was thinking of uh, Matthew 13 uh, a few days ago, parable of the sower of the seeds, um, parable of the soils, uh, as it's called often. Um, obviously, a very contextually important parable for us and our topic um, with having beautiful feet and wanting to spread the good news and share the gospel with those around us, but we can't really control the types of soil that we're going to encounter along the way. Um, <clears throat> if you remember in the parable, right, there's the path and the rocky ground, uh, the thorns and the thistles and the good soil. The birds come up and snatch the seed off the path. And then, of course, the lack of depth in the rocky soil, it springs up quickly and then scorched out pretty quickly by persecution. And then the thorns and thistles, the cares of this world, chokes out the seed that falls amongst those. And it's only the good soil, right, that the seed of the gospel takes root. And of course, you know, Christ is talking about our hearts and if we're in a good place to receive the gospel, which of course God is sovereignly controlling all of that. We can't control the soil, which can be so discouraging at times, right, because we want to play God and we want everybody to be ready and everyone to come to Christ every time we share the gospel, of course. But God is sovereign with that. But there is something we can control, you can control the seed. You can't control the soil, but you can control the seed. And of course, the seed in this illustration is the seed of the gospel. How clear of a gospel message are we sharing when we share the gospel? Even if the soil was right, if the seed was wrong, they cannot come to faith, right? If they do not hear the true gospel, or if they do not appropriately understand who God is, how can they trust in him? They cannot. They have to hear the truth. A.W. Tozer says this for our topic this morning on who is God and who is man. What comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us, of course, because your eternity is at stake, right? If, if I am not thinking of the true God of the Bible, the true Christ of the Bible, when I think about who God is or who Christ is, that's the difference of eternity, for that person. And so that might be the most significant thing about that person. So we're going to spend time on that this morning. And what can get in the way often, I would say, are blind spots. I have a self-deprecating story for you, so you'll enjoy this. I realized one of my greatest blind spots when I went to college. I still remember it, freshman year, so excited, got to room with one of my high school buddies, so there was that sense of familiarity, comfort there. But, you know, you get your books, you go to the bookstore, you spend way too much money on books. Oh, my goodness. I think that's gotten better, by the way. Are they doing the digital books? No, not better. I'm seeing no's. Okay, not better. Well, you don't know how bad it was. So in my day, it's probably just as bad, I'm sure. Books were crazy. You get your, uh, your schedule, uh, you get your syllabus. Sometimes you get them ahead of time. Sometimes it was the first day. So I remember... We're getting ready for bed. You know, it's that first night. You're, you're not home with your parents, but you're trying to be responsible, maybe. I don't know about for you guys. We were faking it at least that first night. So Drew and I are getting ready for bed, getting ready for our first set of classes the next day. <clears throat> and I remember distinctly, my bed was closest to the wall, and the bathroom was kind of around the corner. So I couldn't, I couldn't see my buddy Drew. It's actually Hannah's. Well, she's not there. I'm pointing at Thomas. But Thomas's wife's brother. I couldn't see him, but I could hear him. I hear him, you know, brushing his teeth and he wash out his mouth. And, but what I noticed more than anything wasn't what I heard. It was what I didn't hear. See, in the patent family, of course, if you're not married to a patent, Denise is already laughing because she knows the grossness of our family. In the patent family, <clears throat> it is a tradition that when you get done brushing your teeth, you have to clear the phlegm. And so there is this patent customary only can be analogized with someone hawking a loogie kind of sound. I'm not going to do it because uh, this might, it's probably being recorded, so that would be embarrassing for all of us, most, mostly me. But I didn't hear that from Drew. And it was in that moment, like shattering glass in my mind, I realized, 
oh no, I'm weird, right? I have a blind spot. You're not supposed to make that gross noise, and I don't know why it was other than the grace of God that I realized in that moment, he didn't make the big loud noise. Wait, he's not weird, I'm weird. I'm the weird one. And I don't know how I went through sleepovers my entire life up to that point, you know, that still didn't happen, probably because none of us brushed our teeth before we went to bed, quite frankly, probably. But it was in that moment I realized I had a blind spot, right? Now, what was it that led to that blind spot? What was it that led to this incredibly gross habit in my life? Well, what led to it was my background, my family, my culture, my context influenced me to thinking this was normal, right? And what led to the gross behavior was the gross thought. This was normal, right? What leads to everything that we do, first and foremost, is what we think or believe about those things. I had a blind spot, not only in my actions, but also in my thoughts. I had the wrong thought about what was appropriate behavior before getting ready for bed. Well, our blind spots are not just limited to everyday life things like getting ready for bed, brushing our teeth, whether or not you should clear your throat disgustingly before you go to bed. But we can have blind spots about the most significant things in our life. What comes to mind when you think about God might be the very most important thing about you, you can have blind spots about who God is. Think about all the conversations you've had over your life. They've probably varied quite a bit when you've talked to somebody, if you've had opportunities about who is God. That varies, matter of fact, all over the world. So this morning, one of the things we're going to do is we're going to hear a little bit from some folks who have had opportunities to serve in different parts of the world about what is the common cultural contextual belief about who God is. And you may be a little bit surprised. Um, I'm going to start with Janelle, just so you can get it, get it done that way. Um, and you're farthest away, so you have the longest walk. So Janelle's going to come up and share with us. She's had some opportunities over the years to serve Africa. And I shouldn't have these on at the same time, apparently, so I'm going to turn this off until I turn mine off. So Janelle's going to share with us just real briefly, just a little bit about who God is in an African context. And Correct me on whichever specific countries you're in, because I know I'm just saying a continent, not a country. All right. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Um, So I have been to Africa five times. Um, I think I told it around 15 to 16 weeks that I've spent over there. Um, So I wanted to make a few disclaimers about that, um, that I am not speaking for the views of the entire continent of Africa, and my experiences were also very sheltered. I've only spent time in the Far East, in the Far West, and not in the North or South. And I've only spent time in remote regions and not the larger cities. And finally, I stayed in missionary compounds um, or Christian orphanages and not with the main population of people. But in summary, I would say that most of Africa is very, very spiritual. And it would be very rare and unusual to find the person who would claim to be an atheist. Um, The buses are the main transportation, and even on the sides of almost every single one, they say, Jesus saves or Jesus loves you. And also, that is, um, most stores will have a sign that says that, too. Um, uh, Also, people are very open to speaking about God and what God has done for them. Um, And it is a very, very real recognition of evil and Satan. And almost, it's maybe even almost too recognized. Um, The evil is always lurking, and sometimes that it's almost too powerful for God to even control. And like maybe that evil wins, and evil has control over situations and things. Um, And I would say even for Christians that there is a struggle to understand God's word or even to study it. Culturally, education or um, the lack of education influences the lack of reading or knowing the Bible. Um, In remote locations, electricity is really rare. Um, Maybe most of the places that I stayed, um, if I went to the town, like walked to the towns, there was like not electricity, um, except for like maybe a really big store, maybe would have some, or some of the shops. Um, A doctrine is difficult to learn or understand. So biblical truths about God, his character and his plan are difficult for people to know. Um, And often untruths are very easily spread. Um, God's grace is another topic that is misunderstood, even I think among Christian um, uh, 
the Christian population, because the concept of working for his favor and mercy are so spoken, spoken so often. Those who speak of working for, um, sorry, those who speak of spiritual things also often um, speak of like making God happy or making him angry at them. Um, there's not, like I said, that grace is just like not really understood at all. Um, be, and also just because the, the whole concept of working and working and working is ingrained very early as young kids. They're always working. So there's not things that are given to you for free. You have to work for everything. Um, because there is a misunderstanding of God's character, it leads to a misunderstanding of worship. That God only sees me or hears me um, if I am louder. Um, which also leads to matters of the heart and inner sins are not discussed because they can't be seen. Um, having an understanding about the workings of God in our hearts can be very challenging. So I don't know if this was helpful for what Caleb wanted me to speak about, but um, like I said, my experience was really pretty limited, but I think I'm done. My name is Darren Smith. Um, Caleb asked me to talk a little bit about Lithuania. Uh, now, as Janelle said, it's been seven years since I was last there so I, I, I had to reach out to Judy Wampler on this a little bit because I just I had an idea but I couldn't really hammer down where they're at today um, but from talking to her it confirmed a lot of the things and one of the big things is Roman Catholicism is huge there in fact in Vilnius they have their national cathedral there um, it's it's massive like it's an entire city block there pretty much maybe two um, but behind it though it's very much a, a a paganistic view, I wanted to make it hard. <laughs> it, it's very much a paganistic view, and even then there's a sense of skepticism there, um, because a lot of them really don't, don't have a good theology of who God is. Um, and a lot of them, even in like the Roman Catholic Church, they go to church because that's what they've done their entire lives. They don't know why they do the things they do with First Communion, Sacrament, Communion, things like that, they just don't have an understanding of it at all. Um, and the background behind it, um, and even for the young believers, even for believers there, when Janelle was talking, it hit right on nail with Lithuanians there, is even believers there have a hard time learning theology, learning doctrine, understanding who God truly is. And oftentimes, from my experience from Discovery Camp, there's a sense of, a spiritual high that takes place when they proclaim to become believers at camp, but then usually within a week or two or a month or two down the road, talking to some of the camp leaders there, talking to Steve, you don't hear a lot from them around there because they just, that spiritual high goes away and they get back caught up into the world around them. Um, and to understand too, there's still a generation there that lived during the Soviet Union era. Um, so there's still very much a high skepticism, right, because of the atheistic viewpoint that the Soviet Union taught and indoctrinated um, with the people now. The younger generation, they're starting to become, I guess you could say, more spiritual as well, but they don't have a good understanding, ultimately, of who God is, and uh, they don't have a good way to really get good theology and doctrine, because a lot of it is they don't have a lot of good material there. Um, that's available to them, like we have here. So that's what I have about Lithuania and everything. So hopefully that gives a little better idea for them. I'm going to share about the uh, views of God in uh, China and North Korea briefly. Um, I think in every time and every place, Satan is uh, striving to distort and hinder the view of God. And in both of these countries, he uses the government um, to, to accomplish that. In China, um, with a communist government, there's not much place for organized religion. Um, and so they uh, stamp out and, and block the, the view of God using science and education. So uh, if you ask somebody who's not a, there's a growing number of Christians in, in China, but apart from them, if you ask somebody, uh, do you believe in God? They'll say, no, I believe in science. And so they see science and God as two completely incongruous things, um, particularly pointing towards uh, evolution. However, prior to the 1950s and 60s, before communism took over, um, uh, there was a lot of Buddhism and tribal religion in, in China. And so when communism tried to stamp that out, um, it's still a part of the culture. And so even now, when you have people who say, 
I, I don't believe in God, I believe in science, they will still be very superstitious in the sense of um, every once in a while they might visit a temple um, and uh, offer a, a burnt uh, aroma offering their, uh, their certain days of the year that they will burn paper money uh, or paper cars or uh, paper cell phones uh, so that they can go to their loved ones in the afterlife. And so you have this, this superstition uh, as well as, um, as well as this atheism, if, if you will, that comes together to give you this um, kind of very indistinct, uh, very distant uh, deity um, that uh, it's very difficult to, to relate to, um, but you can try to do good and try to get him or them to do what you, what you would like to do. Um, in North Korea, um, there is no place for, for God. They kind of present God as a, a boogeyman of the of the West um, that has nothing to do with reality. Um, when I had one conversation with a, an older man there, I was able to have a little more candid conversation. He almost acted like I was believing in Santa Claus uh, when I said that I believed in God. Um, it's like it'd be like talking to the person next to you and today, and they said they believed in Santa Claus, and you'd be like. Like what? Like, are you serious? Like, uh, look around. See if there's any young people in here. There's not. Okay, good. Uh, so anyways, sorry, Sam. Uh, um, yeah, it, 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 he's he's not real, um, and they will not come out and say that uh, that their their leader um, at the time is God, um, but. Um, they've been set up, whether it's Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-il, or Kim Jong-un, um, to basically be a, be a deity, an everlasting uh, leader for the country. Um, and so they will never call him God, but they will worship him. They will attribute to him uh, mighty powers. And so that leaves no room for any, any belief in God whatsoever. Okay, thanks, guys. I think it's helpful for us to be able to see just some of the variety of thoughts about who God is. I was just taking a couple of quick notes, trying to follow along as well as I could. Um, so a heavy Roman Catholic influence for Lithuania. Uh-oh. Is that better? That sounds way better. Okay, sorry about that. Um, a spiritism. You know, a little bit with Africa, trouble with doctrine, a heavy sense of evil. Something I experienced a lot as well in Asia. There's just a, there's a heavy feeling and, and, and sense of evil anytime you're there. Um, I don't think Satan has to try to pull on those strings as much here because we're so distracted with other things. Um, but wherever we are, right, there are so many things working against an accurate and appropriate view of who God is. I appreciated the uh, Santa Claus in North Korea, right? I, I remember somebody one time saying you know, they, they connotated who God was almost the way we think of Zeus in Greek mythology in China, that they would think of God as, well, that's, that's, that's something nobody actually really believes in right now, um, which is such a, just a wide range of thoughts about who God is. And it'd be easy or dangerous for us even to think, well, Caleb, everything you just mentioned, that's not here, right? I'm not going to run into that here in the United States, right? We got the Bible Belt. Um, we are a Christian country, quote, quote unquote, though I don't know if we actually legitimately claim that, right? Um, but that's not really contextual for me. I would say, yeah, it, it actually very much is. If, if you were to line up 10 people on a street I would have 10 different conversations with guys on college campuses, and I would get 10 different thoughts about who God is. The dangerous thing is, is every single one of them would think they're right. All of us, we all think we're right. We all think that we have an accurate view. Now, sometimes you'll get somebody who's genuinely honest, or, or maybe by God's grace has been sober to understand, you know, Maybe I don't know who, who God is, and they'll be open to that, and maybe God is working in that person's life. Um, but it is that lack of knowledge that is going to lead to that person's destruction. Matter of fact, um, God said the same thing about his people, their lack of understanding of his law and Hosea, right? My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. It's that lack of understanding that will lead to where they're going to spend eternity, one way or the other. And, of course, it's not just intellectual assent, 
right? It's a personal, intimate relationship, which we're going to focus more on next week. But I don't want to mislead this week of thinking. We just need to know facts about God. Of course, we don't need to know facts about God. We need to learn about who God is and who Christ is. Why? So that we can run to him, know what to repent from and who to repent to. Of course, God is calling us to that personal relationship. You see that in John 17. Christ said, this is eternal life that they know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. That no word, very similar to what Genesis was saying when it said, Adam knew Eve and she bore him a child. There is relational intimacy there, right? We are called into a personal relationship with God. And of course, how are we going to know about this God? Well, we need to just look at him and his word. That's how we are going to know who an accurate view or what an accurate view of God is. So I'm going to do something dangerous. I'm going to ask for feedback in your conversations with people. Um, as you've been talking to them about who God is, what are some of the things for you that come to mind that you think would be of utmost importance that they understand about who God is? What characteristic? What truth? That he saves. That he saves. I like that. What else? Creator. Creator. Hmm. Sovereignty. He's good. He's good. Holy. Holy. Abba Father. Mm. Just. Well, there's our outline. You actually nailed it. That's about everything we're going to be talking about. So there we go. Praise God. Faith Bible Church. All right. Beautiful theology ought to lead to beautiful feet. And honestly, I'm not surprised. We have beautiful theology. Praise God that God has been faithful to bring men in front of us to teach us the word of God about who God is. So we should start, well... At the beginning, God is creator. If, you, if we lose Genesis, we lose almost everything y'all just mentioned. Almost everything. Not that it's not supported in other places in Scripture, but it's undergirded and began right here in the first three chapters of Genesis. So first and foremost, God as creator. Right In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It may seem overly simple, but it is eternally critical for someone to understand, believe, and know that God is creator. God is creator. And if we didn't think it was important, then why was, why was it the first thing he told us about himself? Literally, this is the first verse of the first chapter of the Bible. It's the first thing God sovereignly chose to teach us about himself. He could have started with anything, if you think about it. It isn't just that God is linear or something like that. God was outside of time. But this is the first thing he chose to teach us about himself. It is eternally significant for us to understand, believe, and know that God is creator couple of things you would lose immediately if you lost that God is creator is that God is, these are some of the things you guys mentioned, he's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. If God wasn't creator, is that big enough to see? I could have made it bigger. Sorry, guys. Omnipotent, omniscient, I'll say it. So first, God is creator, and a couple of things underneath God as creator is he's omnipotent, he's all-powerful, he's omniscient, he's all-knowing. God actually uses creation as an evidence of these two things about himself later in scripture as well as he rebukes Job. Think about this. When Job gets out of step, and he goes, all right, Job, you better prepare yourself. Comes a little humble pie right up the middle. He uses creation to remind Job who is all-knowing and who is all-powerful to help humble him, gently remind him, though it didn't seem very gentle when you read it, if honestly, that he is all-powerful and he is all-knowing. Look, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Verse 12. Have you commanded the morning since the days began and caused the dawn to know its place? 18. Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? 37. Who can number the clouds by his wisdom? God is using the fact that he is creator and sovereign over all creation to remind Job, I'm all-powerful, Job. I'm the one that's all-knowing. I'm the one that is sovereign over all things. As creator and sustainer of all of creation, God is testifying to that truth. Of course, you might be thinking of Romans 1 as well, right? For what can be known about God is plain to them, right? His divine nature, his eternal power have been clearly seen in the things that have been made so that we are all without excuse. We're all without excuse. And of course, the rejection of that 
led to what? God gave them up. Maybe the greatest condemnation that there is for God to just let me have what I want, to give me up to my passions, to my sin. God gently reminded Job of this. And this leads us to, this understanding of God as creator leads us to what we spoke about just before, the relational aspect of God. God didn't just leave Job. He came to him, spoke with him. He reminded him of gentle truths. And he did the same thing with Adam and Eve in the beginning as well. We see this relational aspect of God that I think is incredibly important for you as you are opening up God's word to people and helping them understand who God is, as you need to help them see this relational aspect of God as well, that God is a father. Think of the beginning of Genesis. He made Adam and Eve. He walked in the coolness of the garden with them, right? He was there with them. He was communicating with them. They expected him to be there. They knew what was happening when he walked through the garden. Why? Because they hid. (laughs) So they knew that he was coming to them like he had done so many times before, surely, right? His presence was with them. He spent time with them, spoke with them. There was a relationship between Adam and Eve and God. Think about how cool that is. It's almost hard to wrap your head around the idea of actually communing with God. Think of how he spoke to Moses as if a brother to a brother. Like, it is impossible almost to wrap your head around that kind of intimacy that we will get to experience one day and that God has made for us. Of course, John 17, we talked about it just a second ago, right? That we may know him, have an intimate, personal relationship with him. This is what God has made us for. Or I love Psalm 68, which is up there as well. Father to the fatherless. Sorry, the Psalm 68, verse 5 is maybe a little hard to see there for some of you guys. Psalm 68, verse 5. I can't tell you how many times conversations I've had with young men, how significant this right here, this truth about God is so huge for them. And they're coming to Christ and an appropriate understanding of the gospel. Think about the multitudes of people you know that have been through a divorce or have been abandoned by a parent, or maybe lost a parent too soon to death. And the truth about God as a father how significant that is for them, how comforting that is for them, how that meets a real true need that we all have that paternal need in our lives and that God can meet that even better than our earthly parents, that we're meant to have that spiritually with him. If you lose God as a father, we lose so much of the gospel, do we not? So much of the gospel. Good seed, we can control the seed, not the soil. Next would be Someone mentioned it, loving and good. God is loving and good. He provided for Adam and Eve, right? He gave them the whole garden, a cornucopia of probably fruit trees and all sorts of stuff. Who knows what all the the goodies were that were in the garden of Eve for them to be able to eat. They surely had some type of shelter that either God gave them the skills and abilities to provide for themselves or maybe he even provided for them. He loved them. He took care of them. He loved Adam so much He knew it is not good that he be alone and gave him a wife. Which, by the way, was the first time God said it's not good, right? Everything he made, is it good? It is good? It is good? Then he made man. He goes, oh, that's not good. He needs a wife. Let me bring Eve, right? He loved him so much. He gave him his helper, his companion, his better half. God is loving and good. Think of all the good gifts you have in your life. James talks about this. I love this. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, from whom there's no variation or shadow or change. Think of every good thing you have in your life. Really, think about it. Is it your wife, your husband, your children, a job? Maybe God has provided financially for you, health, Whatever it might be, that came from God. We need to not slip into the pattern as uh, Paul called the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Do not boast as if you did not receive that good gift. God gave you that amazing good gift. He also gives you the things that are perceived as bad. Maybe you don't have health. Maybe you've lost a spouse. Maybe you've lost a job. God sovereignly gave you that too. It's not bad. All these things, all good 
gifts are from God above. God is loving and good. All of us through our personal testimonies, which we will work on in a little testimony workshop in a week or so, they all come from God, from above. And we need to help others see that God is loving, God is good. I've heard it often said by some folks that they like the God of the New Testament a lot more than they like the God of the Old Testament. You know, and the God of the Old Testament is fire and brimstone and wiping out the Canaanites and whatever it might be. And the God of the New Testament, he's really loving and kind and merciful and gracious. We need to overcome that for folks. Help them see who God is. Go, go to Genesis right at the beginning. God is loving. He is good. He leads his people out of slavery. He breaks their chains. He provides for them every morning with the manna. He led them with a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. He wanted his presence to be with his people. Think how far God went to provide for them. Not only lead them out of slavery, but to lead them to a new land, then remove their enemies. And then so that he can be near them and they can understand the relationship he wants them to have with him, builds a temple, teaches them how to build a temple, sets up the sacrificial system for them to understand that there is a cost for their sin. All of these things to foreshadow also that eventually Christ can accomplish them all can have a right relationship with him, which leads us, of course, to seeing and understanding that God is holy and just. God didn't fail to do what he told Adam and Eve he was going to do. The moment you eat of that tree, the one thing you can't do, you will die. Now, I remember having a conversation with a guy one time, and he kind of threw that back in my face, and he was like, wait a second, they didn't die. How would you respond to that? Think about that for a second. Wait a second. God said, the moment you eat of that tree, you will die. Well, they didn't die. They didn't keel over. So was God lying? Was God not truthful in that moment? Well, absolutely not. Of course not. What did they do the moment they ate of the tree? I'd love to hear. You guys know better than me, probably. What? Ooh. I'm going to wait on that. What did they do? That was the right answer. That's so good. Hopefully nobody heard it. What did they do? They hid. Good. Yeah. They hid. They ran. They were ashamed. They realized they were naked. They hid from God. They ran from God. Right? They tried to create their own little coverings. What happened? They died spiritually. Deb nailed it. They died spiritually. The eternal right relationship that Christ tells us and right that we were looking at John 17 this is eternal life that they may know you be right with you have a relationship with you right and Jesus Christ whom you have sent that ended in that moment that ended there was separation and it wasn't God who did it yeah Dan and you know the, uh, the world recognizes that there's more than one type of death that's right It's not a gotcha. You're 100% right. More than one type of death. There's spiritual life. There is physical life. And yes, the moment they ate, the moment they disobeyed God, they did begin to die. Death entered the world. Of course, we see more of the holiness and justice of God in that moment as well and God's provisioning for them. Death did have to happen in that moment in order for death not to happen for them. God created a covering for them, did he not? Well, where did that animal skin come from? He didn't just create an animal skin. Well, he sacrificed an animal, right? Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. That God began the sacrificial system right there for them, perhaps. And the killing of the first animal, the shedding of blood, the creating of better coverings for them. They tried to create their own coverings like we try to do all the time for our sin. No, God, God had something better in store for them, something that would eventually be, of course, permanent and all forgiving. No, God is holy and just. He gave them complete freedom. You can eat of any tree if you want, but just that one, the knowledge of good and evil. I'm trying to protect you from something that's going to kill you. And of course, just like I tell my kids, don't touch the hot griddle, don't stick a fork in the outlet, whatever it is, whatever the thing you tell them not to do because it's going to kill them, oh, we got to do it. Run right for it, laughing the whole way there, 
daughter will have her arms up in the air, just running right to it, right to the road. It's like, what in the world? We were no different. God was uncompromising in his standards. Immediately they knew they were naked. Immediately they were ashamed. Why? Because there was something to be ashamed of. God was holy and just in that moment. They hid because there was a separation. God did not create the separation. We created the separation. And praise God, he did not stop there. Which takes us to, of course, that God is merciful. He is sacrificial. Someone mentioned that. Sacrificial. He's forgiving. He sought out Adam and Eve. Adam, where are you? Where are you? He knew where he was. <laughs> you ever think about that? Of course, we do that with our kids, right? Where are you? And you're looking around for your kids. You want them to come to you, right? You want them to fess up even, make it easy, right? Of course, all they did was make excuses. I guess, again, I do the exact same thing. Well, it's this woman you gave me. That's why. Um, and of course, she blames the serpent. We all just pass the buck. We're all really good at that. God was so merciful, so sacrificial, so forgiving of Adam and Eve. He was quick to help them. He wanted to forgive them. He created a way to forgive them, help them better hide their shame, created a better covering for them. And even in the midst of giving them their curse, remember Genesis 3, even in the midst of the curse, he gave a promise. The skull-crushing seed of the woman that yes, there's one to come and he will bruise his heel. The serpent will bruise your seed's heel. He, this one to come, he will crush his head. He will bruise his head. God gave a promise, even in the midst of a curse, that he will redeem this. He is merciful. He's forgiving. He is sacrificial. All the things about God, I mean, they could fill books, right? They're filling shelves in your home right now about all the truths about God. A.W. Tozer's, right, Attributes of God is a great one I would suggest to some folks did some light reading on that before this. So many books you could read about the things about God. And one of the things I love about starting here is this is where beautiful theology can lead to beautiful feet. Whatever you're enjoying about God, whatever you're learning about God, great. Overflow that onto whoever you're sharing with. Share that with them. That's what's gonna be personable. That's what's gonna be alive in you in that moment. That's what the spirit is going to use so well. But ask good questions too. What do they think? about who God is. Some of the best spiritual conversations I've ever had with folks are the conversations I speak the least. Ask good questions. Get great at asking good questions. Not interrogating them, but having a genuine, loving, great conversation with them, right? Who is God to you? What do you know about him? Where do you learn about him? What is your standard of source and truth about who God is? That's one of the best places to start more than anything. Most of the time, it's the Sunday comics about people's views about who God is and how you get into heaven or whatever that might be. What a great place to start. We have to first and foremost, if we're going to have a good seed of the gospel, we have to start with who is God. But next, we need to move on to who is man? Who is man? Which may seem like a, an intriguing thing to get into, almost you know, intellectual in a sense, but it's important for us to understand, in a sense, our place. It's important for us to understand who we are. This gets into a lot of purpose, a lot of meaning in life. You can have lots of great conversations about people, about those kinds of things. Why are we here? Why are you here? What is your purpose in life? What is the meaning of life? And all of that leads back to who is man. So I'll ask you once again, so we're doing okay on time. When you guys think about who is man, biblically, what would you say? I'm sorry? Oh, nailed it. Oh, right, we're done. We can move on. No, sinner. That's good. What else? Made in the image of God. Sons of God. Relational aspect. It's good. Those are pretty good. That's about, yeah, that's, I'm, I'm not going to say much more than that. It's fantastic. First and foremost, one of the first things I thought of which really leads to this sons of God in a way, you know, is, is that we are creation. God is creator, but we are creation. We are part of that creation. Go no further than Genesis once again, right? Contrary to popular opinion, we are not masters of our own fate. We are not captains of our own soul. God is God, and we are not. Let us make 
man. <clears throat> he made us. There's a few implications of this as well. If we're creation, what does that mean? God is creator and we are creation. It means we're his subjects. It means he's in authority and we are not, which means there are consequences to not living underneath that authority. You can see how that, right, a proper understanding of that will begin to lead to the gospel, right? So we need to build that appropriate foundation about who is God and who we are, and the better we have that appropriate vertical aligned understanding, the better we'll be able to lead into, right, sin and the gospel and our response to the gospel, right? We have to start with a good, solid foundation. Nate, you nailed it. Made in the image of God. Love that one. Now this, you want to talk about something that could fill books. I don't have time to exhaust the depths of this, folks. You may have way more to share than I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to keep it very simple here. Um, but I think it's something very important to talk to folks about. We are made in the image of God. Think about all of creation, all the days of creation, first five days, right, before Adam and Eve. And every single one of those there was something incredibly different that happened on day six, right? It is good, it is good, it is good. He created the light, created the expanse. All of the things that he created, and then he put man right in the heart of the most beautiful part of the whole thing, of the whole thing. And of all the things he made in the first five days, did he have a relationship with any of them? No. Were any of them like God in any way whatsoever? No. We were made in the image of God. You see it right there in Genesis, like God. Now, there's a couple of things I think that are important to highlight. We are not one in essence. We are not one in being with God. Now, that, that alone is Christ, the exact imprint, character of his nature and his being. We are not God. We are not one in essence. We are not one in being. There's no deity in us whatsoever but we mirror him, we're like him, we represent him even. You see a lot of that in Genesis. We represent him to this world. He places us in authority under him over the world to steward this world that he gave us. But one of the most helpful ways for me to think of it is our children. For any of us who have the incredible privilege to have children, we live this, we see this in our kids, made in our image. You spend one Sunday in the nursery, you don't even need to ask whose kids are whose. It's very clear. It's like, that's a Lavore. Yep, that is a snip, right? You just look at him and you just know. Here's two, looks just like you, bless his heart, just like you. Kids, they, they, they look like us. It's amazing how God can do that. He takes, takes the wife's nose and the husband's eyes. Most of the time, it's very gracious too. Isn't it so kind that God will pick the best parts of us, thankfully? Man, praise God. I don't have ever felt like I had much to offer. Olive skin, that's about it, right? Tan good. So far, none of my kids are gonna fry. I don't know about the one still cooking, but God can take pieces of us, right? And just beautifully make these children. They're made in our image. We get to see that in real life, just in a way of what it means to be made in the image of God, to be like him, to represent him to this world. Of course, there's, there's responsibilities and consequences that come with that as well. Of course, he gave us some of these other real life illustrations. You think of Ephesians 5, right? He gave us another real life example of what it means to have relational intimacy with God in marriage, as the husband is to the wife, so Christ is to his church. And we have these living examples of what we are meant to have with God in our everyday lives. What a grace, what a gift that God has given us and then spoken to it and explained it to us in his words so that we more deeply, appropriately understand the gifts that God has given us and the relationship we're meant to have with him. The image of God, it is appropriate for us to talk to folks about being made in the image of God. Why? Because there's consequences to being a bad image bearer, which will perfectly lead to the gospel. When we defame his name, when we mock our God, when we defy him, there are consequences just as a father, a loving father with his son, if he were to go astray, right? Now, it's not about the father, it's not about the mother, right? But lovingly, right, they represent your family. A father would be ashamed, if his son was in jail or convicted 
We're living in a strayed life, right? And he would go after him. A good, loving father would go after him. Once again, not just about the father's glory, but for the son's good. And our heavenly father does the same. There are consequences to marring the image of God to our world and to the world around us. And that is significantly important for folks to understand if they're going to appropriately understand the gospel. We are made in the image of God. And of course, this image, understanding us as image bearers, leads to what I think is one of the greatest privileges, which is that we were made to have a relationship with God. Who is man? We're made for relationships. Not all people, but I think by nature, I think even all people, even, even the most isolated, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Extra introvert, hermit. Hmm, there we go. Introverted people, they still crave intimacy. Even if it's just one person, I just want my one person, right? Some of us want like 18 people, you know, come on people, right? But everybody still craves a relationship. Why? We were made in the image of God. God in himself is relational. Think about it for a second. Before time and space began, God enjoyed perfect relational intimacy for all of eternity, for all of eternity. And then God made man and invited us in it. Everything else he created, the plants, the animals, there's, there's no relational intimacy there. He is creator, they are creation, they are subject, they obey perfectly. No volitional decisions here to be made whatsoever. And God makes man, God makes woman, and he invites them into that Trinitarian love to be a part of that intimacy and invites us into that intimacy. That's incredible. One of the best ways I've experienced this, I feel like, you know, was shortly after I came to Christ, a man who was discipling me, you know, he invited me into his home and just had me over for dinner. Matter of fact, it's, it's his fault I'm addicted to coffee. He gave me coffee and it was good. And I started drinking it after that day. But I remember being invited into his family, right? Seeing how he loved his kids, seeing how he loved his wife well, seeing how she respected and honored him and that and, and honestly, seeing the inconvenience of them making time for me, right? And the sacrifice of inviting me in to that love and to that family, it helped me understand in the slightest ways later, beginning to realize this is what God has invited me into. That God would make time for me? I mean, if the president of the United States invited you to come have dinner, whether you agreed with him or loved him or not, right? You would be honored. You'd be like, whoa. You're gonna take time out of your schedule for me? You're, you're going to get to know me? You're gonna to speak to me? Even acknowledge my existence? And this is the God of the universe. Inviting us in to have a perfect relationship with him. As a father loves his children or as a husband loves his bride, all of these shadow in comparison to the intimacy God has made us for with him. We were made for relationships. We were made in the image of God and we were made. We are creation. I think those are key, significant things for us to understand about who is man and who is God. And then of course, somebody nailed it on the head in the back row. We are sinners. <laughs> and which of course is where we will pick up next week. We have to, if we're going to appropriately understand the seed of the gospel and have a good seed, have the appropriate gospel message. We can't, we can't stop where we just finished. We are made for this incredible relationship with God and then stop frame. No, there's more. No one seeks a physician if he thinks he's healthy. No one. They have to know they are sick. They have to know they are wounded. They have to know the bad news if they are ever going to look for and hope for and trust in the good news and in Christ. And as hard as it is, next week we will begin with that. We have to talk about sin. It shouldn't be weird. It shouldn't be unfamiliar. Matter of fact, often it most authentically starts with us talking about how we are sinners. And then people will look at us like we're weird. And they're like, you're the least sinful person I've ever met before in my life, right? You don't cuss. You don't drink or whatever it is. Fill in the blank. I've had work friends that say like, I just want you to screw up or something. It's like, yeah, if you only knew me, Right? Just do the wrong thing for once, right? People will look at you sideways when you call yourself a sinner or undeserving or something like that. There's an opportunity right there, right there, right? To help people, not in a beating ourselves up way, 
but just an appropriate Romans 12, 3, sober view of ourselves. And then, inversely, we'll be able to help others, invite them into that to appropriately understand who they are as they see how we understand who we are in light of Scripture, in light of Scripture. I received a really encouraging letter uh, from a member here at Faith Bible Church, uh, not only thanking me, but thanking my wife, by the way, very grateful to Denise. This would not happen if she was not taking care of the kids every Sunday morning and Saturday morning as I prepare. And, um, but in it, she mentioned a couple of folks she's beginning to pray for, which was a deep encouragement to me. And I hope that that is beginning to happen for you all as well. None of these things that we're talking about this morning are probably new. Many of them are just reminders for all of us to have beautiful feet. She mentioned two people, a neighbor and someone else in her life that she was praying for and trying to be intentional with. One was maybe going well, one wasn't. And I'm not gonna lie, this has been deeply challenging to myself as well. Matter of fact, some of the worst weeks I've had with a young man I'm trying to do a Bible study with have been since we started this class. <laughs> I've had to press hard into the gospel to not find any significance in my performance or how that is going, but rather just to trust in Christ and to pray for that young man. Who's someone in your life? Is it a neighbor? Is it a family member? Somebody that you have been praying for? And if you haven't been, who's someone you could begin to pray for? Who's someone you could reach out with? Who's someone you could be intentional with this week? Church with beautiful theology ought have beautiful feet. As we begin to consider who is God, who is man, what is sin, what is Christ and the gospel, and how should we respond, I want to encourage all of us to continue to be praying for and to be intentional Monday through Saturday as well to be a church that has beautiful feet. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for theology. God, we thank you that we may know you. We're so thankful that you are not just a divine clockmaker who set the world in order and set it spinning and then stepped back and is no longer intimately involved with the affairs of life. God, we thank you that we know from your word that you are an intimate, loving, sovereign God who is precisely involved with all of life. That yes, you have given us freedom in this life, yet there is not one thing in life that you cannot place your finger on and say, mine. You are in control of all things. We thank you that you love us, that you give us good things. We thank you that you provide for us. We thank you that you have sovereignly given us these patterns and mirrors in life, whether it be in marriage or being parents, to understand the intimacy we are made to have with you. And Lord, we thank you that you've saved us, that you sent Christ for us to die for us, that we may be right with you. And then you didn't even finish there. You invited us into this process. You invited us into the ministry of reconciliation. You've left us here on this world. Why? So that we may open our mouths and have beautiful feet. Oh God, we have an incredible purpose that is so much bigger than any of us individually that we all jointly get to be a part of this, whether in weakness or strength, whether in humility or confidence, that God, our trust is in you and we get to be a part of helping others come to know you. We pray that you would deepen our intimacy with you more than anything. First and foremost, that we'd be enjoying you, loving you, passionately reading your word every morning, just seeking after the one thing, as David said in Psalm 27, that we may be in your presence, enjoy your beauty, and that that would overflow onto the lost world around us as we go about our days, whether at work or with our families or otherwise, that God, you would provide the opportunities as we know you do. It's just whether or not we're looking for them to have beautiful feet. Father, we love you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.